Oh, man, what a day. Really? Yeah. It's not over yet. No, I've got my Supreme Court group tonight. And, oh, I didn't uh, know they were coming tonight. Yeah, I did a moot court today. Wow, what Interesting was that about? Interesting one. Yeah, um, it was a, um, a variation of the Planned Parenthood video facts where some state governor takes action to defund, to basically cancel state contracts with mm. Planned Parenthood. Okay. Uh, the state version of Planned Parenthood. There's all kinds of, you know, First Amendment issues and various things. Very interesting. Yeah. Had office hours and I taught this morning. So it was cool. a pretty, pretty full day. That does sound full. You know, speaking of the First Amendment, we've been doing last week, this past week and next week in telecom. Uh, and I'm using Jerry Kang's book this time. Uh, so it's got a bit more material on the regulation of indecent speech. Mm-hmm. And so we've got indecency on broadcast and telephone. We did this you say, week. You say that as if naturally, if it's Jerry Kang's book, it's going to be filled with indecency. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant. I apologize, <laughs> Professor <okay>. Kang. Um, <laughs> it, uh, Spetta and and uh, Benjamin's book, or Benjamin and Spetta's book. Spetta, a prior oral argument guest. Yeah. I can't remember which of them is first. But their book is a little bit more... Um, it's a it's a little bit more skewed toward te- technical coverage, because mm-hmm. um, uh, Spetta is such a phone guy. Um, in any event, this week ca- uh, broadcast and telephone. Next week, cable and internet. And so we've been doing all these cases about indecency, and you know, for so I had to do like the decision internally. Do you do you say the F word in class or do you not say the F word in class? I chose. You mean in the context of the cases? Correct. We're talking <laughs> about cases where that is very right. much what is not at just issue. in general. This is not a general policy. That no, you have no, to no, no, wrestle no. And, with each um, year. <laughs> I can see that would be difficult for you. Yeah. Well, as you, yeah, you know me well. So it's like to not to, it's just very hard. And so when I'm not in class, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I could have cussed in class. And, <laughs> And then, ugh, it's just sad. And I can't cuss here either. It's just very no, sad. This is, a, this is a family show. Mikey tells me I can't cuss. <laughs> oh, well, I'll have to put a lid on it myself. <laughs> yeah, this is this is something we sailors slash academics do. I like it that you say cuss. It makes me think I'm back in high school in South Carolina again. Oh, is that what they say? Cuss? Yeah, no, I think. Instead of swear? Or curse. Or curse. Yeah. When people say curse, I think I, I, you know, it was like when I was a kid, I'm like, you mean cuss? What, yeah. are, you ta- what are you even talking about? Right. No, you say yeah. curse. It's like, I'm not a Wiccan. Yeah. So, so anyway, you're getting, you're doing all this indecency and you're going through this uh, rigmarole over whether, you know, what the appropriate way to talk about these things is. And can you talk about it adequately without actually saying the words? This is kind of the George Carlin, uh, you know, enigma. And indeed the case with which these units almost always began is the FCC against Pacifica case. Yeah. So, so that we started with that this week, but. You know, we did. In so the, I just feel like I'm choking on the First Amendment in a way. And that's in the Supreme Court group a few years ago. We did the uh, Fox cases. Yeah, um, this is we had to do one yeah. of those this week. Yeah, this is from some some of them, at least. I forget. You know, there were several. Of, I it went back and back and forth in the Second Circuit. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it was based off these rules, which were dreamed up when, you know, Bono said the fleeting F word. And, yes, and at the Golden Globes in 2003. Right. There's a great This American Life about it. Where, oh, is there? Yeah. Where, where, oh, oh, I you didn't should, know you that. You should definitely listen. Where oh, Ira, I, should have, I should recommend it to the students. Ira Glass is, is like just incredulous that the, the, the legal reasoning in the case is all about like, you know, that with these fleeting expletives like the F word. Right. That it, it just, it's impossible not to think about the sexual act when you hear that. 
and that it inevitably uh, brings this up in them. I forget exactly how they phrased it in the in Yeah, the well, that was the FCC's reasoning overturning the staff. The staff had determined right. there wouldn't be enforcement, but the FCC, the full commission said, well, look, the reason it's useful as a crude intensifier is precisely because it is a graphic reference to the sex act. Which is like, you know, when you hear Bono say this is effing brilliant. Right. Maybe there's some people who think visually or think in their mind of an actual sex act. But right. those people are weirdos. You don't want those people around. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> like the, the, the funny thing about it is that not only they conclude that it inevitably brings this, but right. the opposite is true. Like nobody thinks of it that way. Oh, I don't I don't know that I agree with that. You, you think when Bono says this is effing brilliant, there are a lot of people imagining like I think the fact conjugal that it's, it, its excitement <laughs> comes from its reference to sex. You don't have to be envisioning specifically a sex act that that someone else or yourself has performed recently or a long time ago or any of that. That's, right? That may be how the word got that uh, got that. Well, precisely. That's, but it's and not, that was their point. But it, it's not it, that usage. That usage doesn't evoke in anyone's mind an actual sex act. Okay. Yeah, we just may, we just might have different beliefs about how the brain works. I mean, I, it activates a set I think of we're associations. Getting an, we're getting an insight into how your brain works. Yeah. I think. <laughs> it activates a set of associations. Yeah. And some of those associations are explicitly sexual. Some of them obviously are not. But the um, the emotional charge of the word comes at least in part from that connection. That seems to me not only not it, implausible it but entirely the- accurate. Right, but but not in a specific usage of it. So in a specific usage of the word, I, often. The commission's you, point was any use of the word will trigger that sort of right. association. And, and that, that sounds right to me. That sounds nuts to me. Okay. Which is, Mike, adjudicate here. Yeah, arbitrate, I was about to ask Mike to arbitrate, arbitrate this as well. dispute. I, I would only say that the two of you are recapitulating the actual George Carlin routine that is the <laughs> genesis of this entire debate. Right. <laughs> Although without all the cusses, I mean, the George Carlin monologue is is a, just a stream of almost uninterrupted um, swear words. Right. Do, are we are we going to record some kind of pre-roll today or are we just going to go right into it? We're just going to go. We're so if we're going to do, do that, it live, if we do that, we need to say who our guest is. OK. So do you want to introduce? Uh, Sure. Yeah, go, go. Right now? Y- yes. Are you sure? Yes, right now. Michael J. Madison. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here. <laughs> you paused as if to consider. No, I just want to make sure that I'm in the rhythm of things. Oh, there's the, one thing you learn. There's no rhythm to this thing. This is I don't know how this thing works, but somehow it works. Somehow we I think we inevitably get to some interesting places. At least I get interested in what we talk yeah. about. But I have no idea how that happens, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I don't really either. Yeah. Like right now I'm thinking because of the reference to rhythm, I'm thinking of Gloria Estefan. Didn't she have a hit song about? Rhythm of something? The rhythm is going to get you. Yes, rhythm's going to get you. See? So, Mike, the rhythm is going to get you. Yeah. I'm surprised that you didn't have an inevitable mental picture of some kind of religious-based contraceptive practice. Oh, the rhythm method. You know, at some, I'm sure somewhere in my brain that 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 was activated to some degree. I'm beginning to realize that. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't think this should be the last time we talk about this uh, FCC thing. Okay. I think you should listen to This American Life about it. I will. Where they do. I'm going to listen to the oral argument about it as well. I haven't listened to the Supreme Court argument in oh, the yeah, case recently. Ago. I have yeah. before, but not recently. Yeah. Because I, I, think, I think there was a, I remember there being a news story right before the argument happened about whether, because uh, I think Carter Phillips was the advocate for Fox. Yeah. And I think they're a very famous, uh, a very experienced Supreme Court advocate. And um, uh, there was some news coverage about whether he would actually say the word. Right. At yeah. all argument. 
Mike is awesome. Mike's introduction was way too short. Mike is awesome. <laughs> well, I'm now done. I, I was going to ask you, Mike, if how would you have thought about if I don't know if you've ever um, argued in the Supreme Court or not, but uh, how how would you go about that thinking about whether you would say the or in class? I guess in class, but the the court seems like, seems like the stakes might be higher, at least Maybe. different. In, and and he chose not to say the word, right? That's my recollection. Yeah, that's yeah. my recollection too from listening to the As argument. Did I choose not to? In would class. would you have said it in the court though? Yeah, either of you. The actual word. Yeah, the F word. I've said it in class when I've taught that case. It it when I teach copyright, it pops up occasionally when I'm playing uh, rap and hip hop music clips. Sure. I think it's when you talk about the actual dispute, I think it's unavoidable. So I suppose if I were in court, you have to read your audience. But I think uh, other things being equal, I'd probably use the word. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one for the Supreme Court, right? I yeah, I said I use in class, I use the phrase F word and the phrase F bomb. Hmm. I did not actually say the word. I think it, the word inevitably comes up when you're teaching. Eldred versus Ashcroft in the copyright extension. Because you're reacting to the court's holding. There's no other way to react yeah. to what happened. There. Oh, I, I yeah. agree. <laughs> so mother. Yeah. You <laughs> just, you just let loose with a, just a stream of invective. Well, this is, this has gotten off to an interesting start. You know, you know, you know one of the, right, now, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you guys about that, that came up in the news this week. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it or not, but it okay. occurred to me that, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious what you think. And that's the Apple FBI whether or not Apple should have to engineer FBI OS. This relates to the episode we recorded at the Tech Law Institute in Atlanta not not too long ago, a few months ago. Right. Um, where, you know, these issues of of privacy and uh, sort of a separate subset of issues. But we, That was more about consumer privacy and the, yeah. the, the, the right but to kind Apple of control your specifically in the way dossiers. it approaches privacy questions was very much um, right. in the discussion at that point. I yeah. was reminded of that. Interesting. I was talking with a colleague about this in my office the other day, and I would, the first thing I would say is that the discussion around the problem got politicized pretty quickly, uh, at least among the, the legal academic scholarly commentary act, in the sense that there's both a sort of a libertarian act that's being ground here, and there's also a Silicon Valley exceptionalism acts to be ground here as well. And I think that it's probably important to keep those perspectives distinct. I have less sympathy for the Silicon Valley exceptionalist perspective, which is to say that Apple and Google and Facebook and equivalent big technology companies must be left alone to innovate and not subject to any meaningful government oversight or regulatory intervention for fear of toppling all of the amazing things that Silicon Valley has given us over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, I'm not particularly sympathetic to that line of reasoning, but I do read it and hear it embedded in what we've seen over the last week. I have more sympathy for the general purpose libertarian argument, which is that uh, notwithstanding some careful parsing of what technically is being asked of Apple, that is, Apple's not being asked to engineer uh, or undo the encryption in the phone. Apple's being asked to do something slightly different. But I think that there's a legitimate camel's nose under the tent concern that once this has been implemented, then it's difficult to see exactly where 
the legal principle stops the next time an analogous request comes in. I think that's a close question. I don't think it's got an easy answer, but I think it it needs to be detached from the we can't disrupt Silicon Valley expectations style of argument. Yeah, this kind of the argument you heard a lot in the early, really early 2000s, late 90s, the don't tax the Internet kind of thing, right. which which may actually have been appropriate in the earlier days of the Internet. Um, you know, that kind of humility about impeding technologies before you understand where they're going to go. As you say, we're in a much more mature position to know what these technologies mean to us right now and how people use them. I, that's still, you have to have some humility about yeah. thinking about, but but I don't, yeah, I, go ahead, Joe. My I, mind turned to, when I heard the story, um, I, when, when Oren Kerr was a guest, um, we had him on to talk about this sort of, uh, like uh, the homeostasis system of the Fourth Amendment, how once certain car technologies came along, then s- sort of search was viewed more favorably. Um, because, you know, and his basic theory in this paper, I'm going to mangle it pretty badly, but the basic idea, as I recall it, was, you know, when the tools for more effective lawbreaking enter the scene, um, courts tend to look with more favor upon tools for more effective law enforcement so that the net effect of them is to bring them back into some balance. And this seems to me to be like the thing I was thinking this week was, huh, if you if you really do have unbreakable encryption, what what is the effective law enforcement technology to rebut it? It's not obvious what the at least not to me. It's not obvious what the answer is. Well, to but that. it seems like with, the, with so could we be reaching a situation where there isn't an obvious move on the other side to bring things back into balance? And if not, isn't that what might motivate lawmakers to say? You know, we're 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 declaring this stuff to be contraband. Is balance even possible? Like that's no, maybe not with with, with these kinds of technologies. But that was his theory, right? Yeah, of, the, of it, how this stuff works over time. Well, I remember. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, was, it was a great episode. It was really fun to talk to. It was Warren. a great paper. So it, really, yeah. And I I, I wonder though, hmm, as I understand it, uh, Apple's being asked to engineer a new version of iOS, which you know, it's not like writing an operating system from scratch. They're asked to basically change the code and ship a new version of iOS, which will be used only on this phone and will disable certain um, features, which uh, um, uh, lock you out and slow down the uh, um, slow down your entry of passcodes and limit the number of guesses in a certain amount of time. Right. So uh, what you can't do is kind of automate passcode entry. Uh, And without that in there, uh, you could um, basically automate the entry of a passcode and you can get into the phone. And so right now what you can't get into is the the phone itself because of that passcode sc- uh, screen. And this, I think, is an iPhone 5C. And on the later iPhones, all of this is in the secure enclave, the separate secure chip. Um, and so to so the, my initial thought was, well, this is only for these earlier iPhones. And for the later iPhones, it's not even possible to get in. But apparently it is possible to get into these later iPhones by mm. flashing the ROM. So, uh, it, so basically, well, flashing the ROM, but you can install, you can, <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about indecency. <laughs> you, you can install a software update even when the phone is locked. Ah. Uh, and that's, and, and that software update can actually change the, I think can somehow change the functioning of that secure enclave chip. And. But let's get away from the tech. No, there, but I think this is important. I think this is really important because now they're working on new technology to disable 
even that. I mean, to make it more secure because these are all ways of hacking the phone. Like right, every right, way right. that the FBI would have to get into a phone is a possible way someone else could hack the phone. Yeah, and this is, and you're right, that is the fundamental problem. I wanted to get away from the hyper-technical details about flashing your bomb. Well, but whatever. they're, <laughs> they, you know, these are, I, I do think, I think that it that it matters. And, and, and so there are a few different things here. I mean, I keep saying that, but <clears throat> you know what I mean, Joe. I hope to hear about them eventually. <laughs> One concern is about the way that the government is seeking access to this information. Uh, right now, it's doing it through the All Writs Act. And and so one set of concerns is the way the FBI is using the authority that it has to commandeer a private company to write new software in order to aid it in its investigation. It might be a different consideration if Congress passed a law forbidding this kind of unbreakable, it's not really unbreakable, but forbidding this kind of uh, encryption or forbidding techniques which, you know, would, would prevent uh, the FBI from getting in. Because, you know, you would, might have the same concerns about a law that does that. A law that says you have to engineer a version of your phone that does this is, it seems a little bit like the private equivalent, equivalent of the Prince case. You know, these are cases saying that the federal government can't commandeer the states to do certain things, right? And, and this is like commandeering a private company to to basically write software it doesn't want to write. And, well, not and what's really. Written, what, I mean, you not really. You just have to say that the you you just write the statute to say a a, the t- a technology that um that can't readily be accessed um on the request of law enforcement is contraband. Right. Right. That so. I mean, so that's a that seems like a silly objection to me. Well, it seems like an objection which is based on a certain baseline. Like here we are now, and now we're going to pass a new statute which is going to require you to create a different kind of product, and. And it's, but that's perfectly reasonable in all kinds of contexts. I think, like I said, I think it was Strahilovitz on on Twitter said, you know, we require car manufacturers to put in seat belts, and right. so for public necessity, we oftentimes require, you know, yeah. design a product. So you no, know, there could be retroactivity problems with the installed base of phones or something like that. But certainly on a going forward basis, right. there would be nothing. The the bigger problem for me is is privacy. This is basically uh, is privacy in a couple of so two thoughts. One is. China and other countries, whatever the FBI demands eventually will be um, also an entry point for other countries. It'll be very hard for Apple not to, you know, allow government backdoors to all countries that demand it. And the, the, the other uh, problem is just the general one of, by law, requiring less secure products, right? I mean, what role is security playing in our society these days? What is the, you know, what... What is the value to a consumer who's informed right. of, of a phone which doesn't have these backdoors, which can be exploited not just by the FBI, but by other smart entities, yep. right? And, and one way of, that I thought about thinking about that is how much less would an, would an FBI phone, you know, this is a phone which is otherwise everything about it looks and functions identically to the iPhone, but you buy it directly from the FBI. How much cheaper would it have to be for you to buy that phone? <laughs> A lot. All right. And now I'm done. I'll, I, you guys can talk. So can I, I, I want to, I think what you're saying, Christian, is really interesting, but I would link it up thematically with Joe's summary of Oren Kerr's thin technical history of, of sort of new devices eventually reaching a new equilibrium regarding uh, sort of the balance between technical innovation and openness and government regulation and how we perceive the appropriateness of that. What's interesting to me is that. If you, I remember listening to the, the podcast that you did with Oren, so I remember that that part of the conversation. And historically, the examples that Oren focused on, and I think rightly, are all examples where the 
we'll say the the um, policy levers that are available to achieve a new equilibrium are distributed both across different institutions in the legal system, but they're also distributed sort of across some range with respect to the technology itself. So that take the seatbelt uh, as an example, if you want to promote public safety with people in cars, there's a range of seatbelt technologies that could be designed and implemented in the cars. We all remember automatic seatbelts. And then, of course, most of us now we have seatbelts that you have to affirmatively buckle. But there's different things that you can do with respect to technology. And then there's a range of things that you can mandate in different legal institutions in order to implement that goal. With respect to the iPhone and the current thing with Apple, encryption, at least if you take a computer science perspective, as I understand it, encryption is either there or it's not there. So Apple, for this particular model of iOS, has this layer that crashes the phone, you'll, uh, erases it if too many false attempts are made to access the, the password. But either it's encrypted or it's not encrypted. And so the range of technology-based uh, sort of interventions on the, uh, is, is much more constrained. It's essentially binary. Either from a CS computer science standpoint, it is encrypted and the encryption works or it's not and it's compromised. So that all of the pressure is essentially on the, the legal institutions side of things. Uh, and I, I think that that might be a, you know, a shift, that this might be one of the very first times where we've had to this question of how to achieve this kind of equilibrium that Oren is describing, but in a technology environment where the, the range of options has been so segregated onto one side of the landscape. You don't have anything to say, Joe? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hypothesizing. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, no. I'm I was, thinking I was about gonna it. Let Joe I, come I, in. I was expecting Christian to jump in. He had no, been, no. He had I said I was going to shut up and let you talk. Oh, okay. Don't do that. <laughs> the, 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 the other thing that I was the other thing I was reflecting on as as you were both talking through this in the in the first instance is that uh, this sort of goes along with what Joe was suggesting. Smartphones in general are rapidly becoming normalized as. Uh, feature of everyday everyday life that there was clearly a point when the first ipods and then the first iphones came out where everybody who got them you know these are these are magical transformative devices and they still are in a sense magical transformative devices but they're so ordinary in terms of how many people have access to them of the things that we do with them uh they're relative inexpense compared to the breadth of functionality I think that's one of the things that's so striking about the current debate that in terms of you know what's the proper mode and what's the proper scale of government access to information and functionality on these phones it's no longer limited to you know a special class of people who have been able to afford the special class of device now it's essentially an everyday tool that almost everybody at least in the in the westernized world uh, expects to have access to on a pretty robust, consistent basis. And didn't we talk about the, was it Riley, is that the name of the case, the recent Supreme Court case about the need for a warrant when you're talking about uh, inspecting what's on someone's phone? Yeah, that, sound, that sounds right. Yeah, and, There and was so, that case. Yeah, yeah, but we should put it in the show notes. But it's, it's I mean, it, I think a lot of the, the Chief Justice's uh, opinion it t sort of leverages that ubiquity and says, yeah, everyone's using these. The these things have so much of our information on them. So in terms of people feeling very personally like, hey, this affects me, right? If the FBI wants people to be able to get into smartphones and there's a real risk that the ability to get into smartphones without my permission or without 
my intention being involved like that i think that would probably strike a lot of people as oh my gosh that's about me like i i I, i'm I'm affected by that decision Uh, because these devices are now so ubiquitous not necessarily iphones but you know smartphones generally and i you know i like i certainly like the idea that apple has decided uh you know i saw some snarky headline about oh this is just all this is just a business ploy on <laughs> apple's part and i was thinking to myself well, why isn't that a why is that a compliment that's a compliment not a criticism it's like they've they've recognized hey there's an appetite for more secure devices and so they're trying to serve a public interest in having technology that's more secure so why, that seems praiseworthy to me not 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 something you would condemn yeah, but at they, least in the perspective yeah. of addressing market interests and what's the range of devices that people are interested in. So, some screens are bigger, some are smaller, some are clearer, some are fuzzier, some are more. Some phones are more secure, some are less secure. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I, I don't see really much up business upside for them at all in picking a fight with the FBI over this particular case. It's not the FBI yeah. fight, but but the, the notion that just be having a more secure device, yeah. which does seem like what they've been trying to do over the last year or so. Yeah. Be very public about that. Um, that seems like a good business strategy, doesn't it? And Well, I, I think that, let me just go back to what you said about ubiquity. So not only the device is ubiquitous, but the it's the amount of information that you pour into them. It's the degree to which the things are tied to your life. And that was what the chief justice picked up on in the, yeah. in the opinion, right? Was that it's not like having a few pieces of paper in your pocket. Yeah. It, it's like, you would have to have like a trunk full of stuff in your and pocket. And you put those two things together and it's like, oh my gosh. You put it together and you put together. Super and this is, I don't know if I would describe encryption as binary in the same way that you did, Mike, but there is a sense in which it's binary. And that is that if the if the government breaks it, it gets at the whole thing. It gets at your whole life. It doesn't have to get a, a, a wiretap for your phone and ability to put a camera here or there. It gets access to the entirety of your life to the extent more of your life is invested in the thing, right? Encryption itself, though, you know, I remember I took cryptography as a grad student and, and, and back then we learned about DES and, and RSA and these new kind of public key technologies. And it was kind of cool seeing how they worked and, and what, and, and then we, you know, wrote programs to break them and do these things. And what was really cool was just seeing, even at that time, that, that cryptography is always a balance between how much you want to, how much you want, how many resources you want to invest in encrypting something and how many how, you know, what resources you have available to decrypt something. And there's always been that balance in cryptography. If you want to get into something badly enough, you probably can. Um, although you, you go to enough um, bits in the key for one of these things and you just can't get into it. And, uh, but of course that raises the computing expenses on the other side. So there's been that kind of balance in cryptography. I think that's why, you know, I have no idea the, the NSA, I just kind of assume can get into all these phones. Hi guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're listening um, to this. So, you know, sure. All right. So there has been that balance about, you know, you, you don't you don't just go hacking into phones or, or hacking into computers and, unless you really want to, because it takes some investment of resources. Right. But if there's a back door into all iPhones or something, then it's as trivial as filling out a warrant. And those are quite easy to get, despite right. what people say. And and then it's just a trivial matter of getting the entire life of someone. Uh, and the concern is, will that power be abused? What, what does it mean to be abused? And then why would other countries not demand the same thing? And then we live in this X-ray society. Maybe that's, in, maybe that's where we're going ultimately, because I actually have some sympathies. You know, as you know, Mike, I wrote some, one of my early papers was on information um, uh, and, right. and knowledge. And, and I do have this concern that, you know, as knowledge gets more and more powerful and the 
it and 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 cheaper and cheaper instrumentalities can leverage that knowledge. And here I'm talking about, you know, super viruses, other things. Uh, as knowledge gets more powerful, it's unclear how we continue to exist as a species as it becomes disseminated and people are able very cheaply to leverage that knowledge in a very destructive thing. So I'm totally sympathetic to the idea that eventually we might need to, I don't know what we're going to do, but maybe keep track of things better. There may have to be some information restrictions. I, I, I don't know how it's going to happen without in the, in the current state of the world. But um, so I'm not totally unsympathetic. I'm not a, a, a total like, um, uh, what would you say? Like, um, um, uh, well, bi- I think biblical version of a libertarian. I, I, guess, I think but... we will have cooked the planet by then. Mm. Like before that happens, we will all have drowned. Well, we'll definitely have moved everything on the East Coast back about 100 miles. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, you want to get to the stuff for today? Yeah. All right, let's, I'll let you set it up then. No. Well, I'm not going to set it up. Yeah, you're the one who wanted to talk about fair use. What are your thoughts about fair use? Fair uh, use is a practice. <laughs> hey, Mike, tell us about fair use. Drop some knowledge bombs. It's Fair Use Week. It's a, it's a global uh, celebration of the Fair Use and Fair Dealing Doctrine. You know, you're right. I, and I had forgotten that. I saw that earlier in the week. So this is even more opportune than I realized. Christian, Are, did you know that? I did not know that it was FU Week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looping us back to our initial conversation. <laughs> but um, I think it's great. So Fair Use. Lay it on us. <laughs> yeah, that's your entry point. That's totally unfair to a I guess. know it's a, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, it's it's so, so ridiculous. It's redonkulous. It's like so, Mike. The Constitution. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wee. Oh, maybe I'll take ninety seconds instead of sixty. Then that's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Mike. Look, I know Mike to be a brilliant scholar and a fabulous teacher. So I feel perfectly confident saying, hey, fair use, how about that? <laughs> What's up with that? For the benefit of, of listeners, I guess, who are not copyright mavens, let me just lay out in very, very abbreviated form the, the, the black letter doctrinal landscape, uh, which is, helps us to sort of tee up more interesting things and complicated things to talk about. How's that? Cool. A U.S. copyright law grants the copyright owner exclusive rights in a copyrighted work defined in Section 106. The right to reproduce the work in copies, the right to adapt the work, the right to publicly display, publicly perform, et cetera, et cetera. Each of those exclusive rights and the collection of exclusive rights in Section 106 is subject to the defense of fair use, which is expressly defined in Section 107 as not an infringement of copyright, although in practice and procedure it is generally pleaded and proved as an affirmative defense. The idea behind fair use is that some things, some uses of copyright works uh, or copyrighted works uh, are not subject to the exclusive control of the copyright owner, may be engaged in without prior permission or payment. And the statute, which uh, was only enacted into positive law as part of the 1976 revision, goes back to the middle of the 19th century as a part of judicial decision making in copyright. And that sort of 150-year-old tradition has been brought forward into the text of the statute, which captures a couple of different things and not entirely consistently with one another. But part of the statute gives a sort of model examples of the sorts of things that are often considered to be fair use, like news reporting, classroom teaching, historical investigation, 
criticism and the like. And then in addition to that, what that set of uh, model uses, there's a set of four factors, non-exclusive factors with no particular algorithm given as to how to integrate them, but four factors that courts and litigants usually apply to sort out what's infringement versus what's fair use. And the four factors, the two most dominant factors, the one that most courts and litigants fight over uh, are the nature and purpose of the use. In other words, what did the defendant do? That's the first factor. Uh, and that's the, that's the factor where the idea of transformative use or transformation of the work or transformative purpose by the defendant often comes into play. And then the second most important factor in most cases is the fourth factor, which talks about economic injury or economic harm. Has the defendant's use of the work caused some financial or economic harm now or in the future that the Copyright Act, copyright policy should recognize and count against the defendant and in favor of infringement. Can I ask a question about factor four? Sure, jump right in. Because you, you said economic injury. Uh, can we focus it a little bit more and say substitution-based injuries? In, it, because uh, you could have an economic injury that, that you know, in a, a critical review of a book convinces everybody that it sounds like an excessively foolish and badly written book, and therefore less people buy it, fewer people buy it, right? And and that's an economic injury, but I don't think it's the kind of injury the copyright law is designed to remedy. Right. So it's a substitution problem, not a, not an economic problem more generally. Right. Well, a couple of comments then. One is you're absolutely right that some kinds of economic harms don't count for copyright purposes. And, and the Supreme Court's been pretty clear about that, and the lower courts have been mostly pretty clear about that. There's still a lot of hard work to decide sometimes when some economic harms count and when some economic harms don't count. But it's largely agreed that not every, not every countable instance of economic injury counts against the defendant. The, the idea that you can sort those boxes into substitutional injuries that are more plausibly infringement and non-substitutional economic impacts that are, are not uh, infringement, that's, I, I think, a little bit less consistently represented in the case law. Mm. So you've got, you've got some judges, uh, Judge Posner comes quickly to mind, who has really aggressively tried to sell that argument, that you can divide <laughs> the world into substitutional uses of copyright works and non-substitutional uses of copyright works, and then infringement and fair use fall out pretty neatly along those lines. The, the challenge to that line of thinking uh, includes defining what counts as substitutional in the first place. So remember back starting in the, the early 90s with the, the pattern of litigation that journal publishers engaged in over course pack design and course pack photocopying. Mm. They were trying to establish a legal baseline that reproducing journal articles for university course packs was copyright infringement, not fair use even though the journal photocopying was being done for teaching purposes because at the end, the end users of the journal articles were, were college students. That was characterized by the courts as a kind of economic injury that counted against fair use and in favor of infringement, even though it was not a classic substitutional injury, right? It wasn't the case that the college student use of the journal articles was competing with a subscription model that was in place for the journals, rather the, the course pack usage, the college student purchases were competing with 
potential licensed uses, potential downstream uses of the journal articles, where the, where the record that those downstream uses were contemplated at the time of publishing or built into the business model of the journal publishers was far from clear. Yeah. So it was, I remember someone wrote a paper, it was called something like, is this market failing or forming? And it was to try to get at this question of characterization and the time sensitive nature of the question. Like, it depends on when you're asking. And when do people have a, a sort of a copyright clearance center system already up and running or not? And that that feeds into whether or not you're talking about a substitution effect or not. Uh, but even in that context, you are still talking about the substitution question as a key question, right? Even if you can't tell exactly how to answer it, Substitu- it's still a thing you're yeah. focusing on a lot. It seems like substitution, though, is, is, a, is a word that is standing in for a, a broader principle, and that's whether you are using in the, the work in a way that is, that is consistent with the purposes of the original work, whatever that is, right? And so that the case that I use in property, just as, as a brief introduction to this stuff, is the Wind on Gone case. This is yeah. the, the parody of Gone with the Wind that tells the story of Gone with the Wind from the slave's point of view for the purpose of ridiculing uh, Gone with the Wind. And there, you know, it's, it's quite clear the substitution argument works very, very well, right? Because although people who read that book may, um, may, may decide not to consume Gone with the Wind, in the future, uh, the reason they do that is not because, well, I've, I've seen this story before, <laughs> you know, no reason to do it. It's not as if this was like Scarlet or, you know, Gone with the Wind 2. And it's like, I don't need to, don't need to read the original now because I know the whole story. It's, it's rather, it's that, boy, I'm convinced that there was something lacking in Gone with the Wind, a perspective lacking, so lacking that in fact, the original book, it, it, it has this gaping moral hole in it. Right. And, yeah. um, and that seems to be just the effectiveness of the criticism uh, rather than any kind of sense that the, the parodist was free riding on the efforts of the other, right? That seems like substitution is a word, again, which is more emblematic of a general principle. Although I, I teach the substitution idea to the students um, to distinguish it from, you know, just hurting the market. But I, I do feel like it stands in for a, a broader uh, principle meant to pick out those copies that are kind of trading on the original, right? Rather than maybe trading off or engaging with. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I don't, I don't know if that's... Well, it's a way that the, the, the transformation factor and the market harm factor can sort of walk together or walk separately in an analysis. Because the story it, you just yeah. told actually combined them yeah. together, right? When someone's making a transformation, it's, it's highly likely that they're not that they're that the economic harm that gets caused if any gets caused um is of the sort you described right yeah, it's it an convinces account. somebody it's less interesting as an original work when i was trying to think about the market formation argument that i heard you guys making i may have misunderstood but so one reason you might get a course packet together and do the is that it's just too expensive to clear all these copyrights and so there are no lost sales here in this particular instance no lost sales because if i weren't able to use these copies i would just write my own summaries or i'd use something else because i'm not there's no way i'm going to clear all these copyrights but that problem that the copyrights are too expensive to clear that problem has a market solution, right? Which is a middleman or something else which can build right. the market, right? right? And so although the substitution does, argument doesn't work to tell you why the course packet should be um, uh, should not be a fair use. Now, bracket, I think they all should be fair uses as, we, as you know, Joe. I mean, right. I think all these educational uses should be, but that, bracket that for a second. If my reason for making the copy was to avoid all these transaction costs, and maybe that's a very, very good reason, that is a, there are no lost sales. And so there's no, you know, substitution effect. It's not that this is substituting for what would be a sale, 
rather my using the course packet and getting fair use for that course packet is is eroding the potential for a future market. And if that market existed, then these things would no longer be substitute. Then these things would be substitutions, right? The course packet. Yeah, that would be was that was, and that was the underlying sense in those in some of those course packet cases. But Mike, you, uh, my recollection is you have a very different way of approaching all of this instead of looking at it as sort of here are some factors and don't you have a different take on this? So I do have a different take, although I, I don't want to lose track of the of the market failure, market solution issue. That's a very interesting recent illustration of the of the complexities with that. But let's bracket that. Well, no, tell no, tell us about it. Well, uh, you know, strike while the iron's hot. I'll talk about that first and then come back to my my take. So the the take that you might have seen this uh, in the news recently. There is a, a, a group of people out, I think, in Southern California that are uh, crowdfunding a proposed prequel to Star Trek, the original Star Trek. They've raised quite a lot of money, uh, seven figures, apparently, uh, to produce uh, a feature film. Huh. And we're in the news recently because uh, I think it's Paramount, which owns the relevant copyrights, uh, sent them a cease and desist letter, which was promptly published. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the 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 prequel. I don't know the content of it, but it would clearly be kind of an adaptation and extension in, into prior times of the of the Star Trek universe, or at least some version of the Star Trek universe. Because of course there are so different generations and and environments for the Star Trek universe and different narrative pathways that the the universe has gone along. But one of the things that has caught my eye about this, and it speaks to the you know, the, the transactions cost aspect of fair use is apparently paramount or whoever's asserting the, the plaintiff's interest or the claimant's interest in this case has alleged that these defendants or accused infringers are infringing thousands of copyrights. That is, you might ask, well, if there's copyright infringement going on in this crowdfunded Star Trek case, exactly what copyright is at stake? The answer appears to be, and this is just based on sort of published cease and desist level correspondence. The answer appears to be everything in the Star Trek universe is separately copyrighted, which is an interesting take on things. I understand the nature of that argument. If I were to if I were to put myself in the position of you you mean you mean, Mike, like Spock is separately copyrightable and the Enterprise itself and all the stories and situations, every element. The the stories, the sets, the characters, the costumes, the, the tribbles, the the different props not the uh, tribbles <laughs> yeah <laughs> all of it down yeah. to the last detail i mean literally every material aspect of the star trek universe meaning the the fictional universe in which the the movies and tv shows were produced is is a separately copyrightable work well then there aren't there aren't thousands there are tens of thousands or hundreds okay. of thousands right tens i mean an avogadro number yes there is millions perhaps there is a google yeah avogadro's number is bigger but that's oh it is no i guess it's not 10 to the wait, wait. 10, 10 to the 23rd is avogadro yeah you're number. right uh, 10 to the 100 is google right yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, my after this exciting detour. <laughs> uh, so if if that if that claim is correct, uh, and it's a plausible claim, meaning that if I were to put myself in the position of a movie studio executive, how does a movie studio executive think about the property in a colloquial sense that they own? Movie studios think that they own universes. They don't think of themselves as owning separately copyrightable works. That's the mindset that they bring to this conflict, I think. 
And they even they even call them properties, don't they, Mike? I mean, they call they them like the Star Trek property. We got the Star Wars property, right? So, but but it raises a uh, you know this tension with you know, the, in the exposes the limits of the transactions cost framing of a lot of fair use problems, right? So in the courseback case or the coast courseback situation, copyright clearance center was created around the same time as the initial courseback litigation, and all of us as teachers now either live with the clearance system or use public domain materials to avoid the clearance system. But the Copyright Clearance Center is a functional institution that solves transactions cost problems that college and university professors face. And it's an expensive system, but it's a manageable system. But the Star Trek illustration, I think, suggests that there are circumstances and scales at which the transactions cost solution simply does not provide an effective framework, even for thinking practically about what to do. Could I make a, so one observation, just as a practical matter, one constraint on the copyright owner uh, is if you actually wanted to bring suit on those individual copyrights, you would have to register each of them. uh, And that's not free. So one constraint on uh, the number of them that you would actually assert is the number of them you'd be willing to pay for to actually register. Right. Joe, I'm not sure that that's as meaningful a constraint as you think. I strongly suspect that if I were Paramount in this in this Star Trek case and I wanted to uh, you know, register what needed to be registered in order to assert tens of thousands of copyrights, I could register the copyright in each separate movie. Maybe I would go to the trouble of registering a copyright in each episode of each of the different TV series. And then I think that would probably satisfy my burden of registering the relevant copyrighted work. And then within each litigation, it would be possible and plausible and permitted to argue that that blanket registration for the movie covers sets, plots, costumes, characters. Ah, right. So you're just you start arguing about how, look, uh, even it, it much like in the music sampling cases, right? Even if you take only a small amount of the expression from the work, you've still copied expression from the work. Correct. So so or, you have to get made, over you have a, to get over a de minimis hurdle, yeah. but 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 as, assuming you do that, or you've made a derivative work, right? If you use elements, it, uh, you'd, you'd be dealing with the same argument. Same Whether, argument, right? Yeah, derivative work infringement or reproducing Expression uh, infringement. All right, before we get on to Mike's uh, big idea about fair use, yeah. uh, um, is has anyone ever? And I, I haven't seen this, and maybe, maybe this is like well known and tried out and failed. But have people written about using a register, you know, reintroducing a registration system where you have to pay a registration tax for each copyright that you register, where that tax is meant to capture? In other words, we shift the transaction costs onto the copyright owner of the monopoly. But by so you're ta- you're talking about um, making the adjusting the registration fee so that it approximates what we think they'll earn with that copyright. Not what they'll earn. We're not trying because then it wouldn't be. It would be some measure, and we you know I don't economists could do this, but but some measure of their proportionate share of the transaction costs involved in a system of intellectual property rights over expression. So how much, if we estimate how much loss there is in society from people searching for copyright owners or taking on the risk of using something without knowing who the copyright owner is, Uh the uncertainty of fair use, like all this has a value, right? True. All of this has a value when I decide to use a less good work because I'm worried about copyright 
or when I actually am trying to assemble a, you know, a documentary and I'm trying to clear, but and I have to reach out and find people. So I don't know of, if anyone else has. I know I don't want to write it because that sounds like an enormously complicated thing to even begin to try to get your arms around to approximate well, those values. You know, you know one way. You know one way to test it, which would be easy. Start with a um, a pretty high tax and see if you get less expression. And it's not like you can't readjust it the next year. You just keep adjusting it. Why is there not a market that way? Christian, I think that's a really interesting. I want to say that somebody has written about it, but I don't want to say it out loud for fear of, of uh, mistaking something for, for what, you're just, what you're talking about. I actually think that conceptually, it's a pretty straightforward idea because it's essentially the reverse of uh, sort of user tax systems or, or equipment tax systems that we, we see both in the U.S., uh, the Audio Home Recording Act system, for example, that taxes the producers of digital recording equipment, digital audio tape equipment, as a, and to create a fund to compensate copyright holders who claim to be harmed by distribution and use of that equipment. Or there are similar levies. Uh, Germany comes immediately to mind for a country that's imposed copyright levies on blank media. Yeah, like blank blank CDs, right? And they used to right. have this on blank CDs. Yeah, but right. this uh, the, uh, this is not if I heard Christian describe it correctly, which I may not have, the the losses he's trying to account for are far more nebulous and far more numerous in type. Right? You were talking about all sorts of choices not pursued because people are put off by these copyright problems. Like the whole orphan works issue was wrapped up in what you just described. I guess right? so. I mean, yeah. so those are those are far less tractable than which means you're likely to underestimate, right? I mean, when you if you try to if you try to uh, estimate these losses to society from uh, the tran- just the transaction yeah, cost of monopoly, yeah, that could be. You're, you're likely to underestimate, but then who cares? Like, why not just start with something yeah. and then keep going up until you you see some you are able to measure well, some detriment I, hmm. because they could be minimal right it, it could be that there that it could be you said you definitely underestimate them maybe you'd underestimate them in the aggregate right but but maybe you wouldn't right maybe most of them are actually trivially small and maybe you don't register that copyright well so two observations one as a practical matter all the, the entire idea as a practical matter runs into the burn convention and the right. prohibition yeah. on formalities as a condition of enjoying copyright protection, uh, which is the standard practical concern that's rolled out anytime anybody suggests <laughs> anything along the lines of sort of clarifying the transactional ground rules. Yeah, Mike, it, glo- it goes without saying that I'm suggesting a global consciousness raising solution. And <laughs> yes. uh, I expect it to be it, implemented any day now. The first step of which would be a massive <laughs> violation of international law. Well, right. I mean, this is a massive international change that I'm suggesting. Yeah, a, that's a, what I'm saying. A change exactly. in global law. I'm I expect it to happen within the year. So, right, right. Yeah. Okay. The, but you had the, a second point. The, the second point is that in the course of the DMCA Section 1201 uh, anti-circumvention exception rulemakings that now take place every three years, meaning the Library of Congress proceedings to determine the conditions for an exception to the anti-circumvention statute in Section 1201 of the Copyright Act. Um, so, So user groups basically plead their case to the Librarian of Congress to say, uh, members of this particular community should be permitted to engage in what would otherwise be prohibited acts of circumventing technologies to access copyrighted materials. 
because the benefit of allowing us to do these things outweighs the harm to copyright owners associated with the, the, the circumvention. These proceedings take place every three years, and so the groups that advocate for the exceptions have in recent years put the call out to a variety of copyright user communities to come forward with evidence of how the inability to circumvent technologies has hurt them in engaging in some kind of artistic or creative practice. So, for example, teachers who want to use, high school teachers who want to use feature films in media education classes in high schools around America uh, run into problems in editing film clips so that they can be used in class because of the different protection technologies that are baked into DVDs and Blu-rays. The challenge is how, how do these advocacy groups in the context of these 1201 proceedings document the harm, which is a close cousin of how would you document and aggregate the scale of the administrative costs and transactions costs associated with there's a lack of clear lack of clear notice, lack of clear boundaries around what constitutes infringement, what constitutes fair use. Mm-hmm. And the answer has been that it's been hard to generate this information. That's the takeaway. So actually coming up with hours, numbers, dollars, uh, time wasted, time lost, creative uses foregone. Uh, that evidentiary burden has been really, really difficult to me. Mike, it sounds like you're hammering there. Well, I'm passionate. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no, it sounds, uh, um, it sounded like a fist hitting the table as you were hitting those points. <laughs> so, uh, maybe now would be a better time to turn back to the, the writing that I've done about this. Excellent. The big idea. So my thinking about this goes back to 2003, 2004, when the big topic in copyright land was Napster and file sharing and, uh, debates raged coast to coast about whether free downloading on open networks, free uploading on open networks was fair use, infringement, personal use, private use, commercial piracy on an enormous scale, etc. And so <laughs> I actually started writing a paper that was really trying to answer that question and figure out what the right framework in copyright was to look at that. And Uh, A couple of years and a lot of drafts and different titles later, I published a paper in 2004, which is called A Pattern-Oriented Approach to Fair Use, which was and and is sort of my effort to comprehensively sort of restate the guiding framework for fair use, not by looking at legislative history, not by looking at economics, but really looking closely at the way in which appellate courts were deciding cases. So a a somewhat traditional, almost classical way of of doing research. Like a a restatement. Uh, In a manner of speaking, what I discovered simply by reading all of the appellate cases that had been published since the enactment of the current Copyright Act, which took effect in 1978, I, I read all of them. I read them very carefully. I read them at multiple levels. To my way of interpreting them, What courts were most interested in looking for and what courts tended to rely on was was the defendant engaged in some activity that was consistent with some documentable social practice. 
So if the defendant came in and said, I'm engaging in parity, the question was really, is there a, a an established social practice that we can prove independently or that we can recognize independently called parity? And is this individual defendant in good faith and legitimately doing what that what is defined by that social practice? Hmm. So you could say, you know, parity would be one category. Criticism, which is aligned but somewhat distinct, would be a second. Journalism or news reporting would be a third. And just so on down the line. And and that paper documented, I don't have it in front of me, but let's pick a number, 10 or 12 sort of consistent buckets of social practices where the overwhelming majority, perhaps all but one or two of the published appellate cases at that time, you know, you could you could predict yes, fair use, no fair use, according to the presence or absence of a relevant and legitimate social practice. Where the defendant fell out and the judgment was infringement rather than uh, fair use, it was either because there was no relevant social practice meaning that the defendant was essentially a market actor who was not behaving in market appropriate ways, meaning the defendant should have you know, gotten permission or bought and paid for what the defendant used, or there was a relevant social practice, but the defendant was not sort of acting in good faith and legitimately in a way that's consistent. So the defendant claimed the defendant was a parodist, but this wasn't really parody. I want to ask you if this is um, another way of thinking about it is in terms of kind of stories we tell about people and tropes and whether you fit into one of these tropes. But it, to, to make that more concrete, I'm thinking of the Sony versus Betamax case. Uh, I mean, the Sony Betamax case itself. Uh, this is the one where the Supreme Court, by only a five to four margin, upholds the legality of the videotape recorder. The dissenting justices, uh, I think it's fair to say they, they didn't get re- time shifting of TV recordings as as maybe in your terms, as a social practice, <laughs> you know, a social practice in which one is expected to make copies, right? Where it just feels natural that you would make a copy and there's nothing wrong with that. And the examples they cite of things which are clearly fair use are things like clipping newspaper articles out and sending them to friends to put on their bulletin boards. And the overwhelming sense I get when I read the case is, boy, the justices are well familiar with the kinds of copies they make, right? <laughs> the kinds of practices they engage in that involve copying, the kind of stories they tell about good copying. They said, yeah, I, think, I guess at the end of that case, and I forget exactly what the standard is, that they didn't think you should be able to claim fair use when um, you make a, an ordinary copy and don't add anything of value. Um, right. Although it's hard to say what the newspaper clipping sent to a friend would, uh, or a copy of that would actually, it, it's, anyway, it's hard to distinguish other than that the justices are familiar with the kind of copying that they think is kind of fits into a social practice, which is just part of our lives, right? And and to find property there would be to block, to block kind of the building blocks of ordinary culture. I, I don't know what you think about that, but do you think that like tropes and stories are the same thing as social practices? Well, I think they're relevant and related, meaning to, to I want to come back to the Betamax case as the example, but in the in the general sense, and the paper that I wrote in 2004 talked about this to some degree, that sort of how do you identify the existence and the genuineness of a relevant social practice? The stories that are told and the language and the vocabulary and the syntax that are surrounding that practice actually matter. In other words, if you were to put my model into practice, how would it be proved? One thing that you would imagine doing is bring an expert testimony to talk about the fact that the metaphors, the syntax, the vocabulary, the stories, 
et cetera, their breadth, their durability uh, across society and across time would be an indicator of the genuineness of the social practice. I wouldn't rest the entire case on that, but I, I do make the point in the article that, that that would be a relevant source of evidence. So in the Betamax case, what's interesting is that the case for strategic reasons, it was brought early in the commercial life of videotape technology. And I think you're right that the justices just couldn't relate to the, the actual usage of these machines, but precisely because, recalling our earlier conversation, the machines in 1982-1983 were not normalized technology across society. They were still very expensive, very exceptional things. Uh, so it's no surprise that they didn't penetrate the consciousness of the justices. So I think that the, the, the divide between the majority and the dissent over time-shifting or librarying is partly a phenomenon of the time. I think that had that case come up 10 years later, when videos, you know, VCRs were far more common, were far cheaper, and people had figured out how to use them in a more common, casual way, the sharp edge between the majority and the dissent in the Betamax case itself, I think, would have been softened. And the example that I would offer to sort of, sort of build on that is the fair use cases around reverse engineering. So the first big leading reverse engineering case in copyright is Sega versus Accolade from the Ninth Circuit in 1992. The question there was simply whether a game designer that was competing with Sega was entitled to copy some of the source code from the console, reverse engineer it, bake the, the adapted code into the new cartridges, so that the competing game developers' games would work on the Sega console. This is, this is without getting a license from Sega. Without getting any permission, doing it entirely. You know, so copying copyrighted code as an intermediate step, as the court said, an intermediate copy made to understand the ideas embedded in the code so that, that I, those ideas could be expressed in a new way in the new games all of which, if that series of steps lines up, could be accomplished without the permission of the copyright owner. And that way you get interoperation, and that way you get more competition for games for the console. I, I guess, but you know, one of the things that, that that makes me think of, which is different than Sony, is the way that the outputs from decisions like that are really hard to predict because they are market constitutive. So, for, for example... Um, one of the reasons that uh, a console maker will make a cheaper console, sell it for less, you know, it's kind of a razor and blade. Yeah, kind they're going to make it right? up on the games. They're going to yeah. make it up on the games and not only first party games, but license fees to right. have your it's game on the system. Yep. And so maybe you this actually. That's why Randy Picker opposes that case, I think. I think. Is that right? I think that's why Randy Picker's critical of the Sega V Accolade case. Because it, you're, you're sort of jumping in and cutting off their decision about how to get their return on that market. Yes, it's harder to see in that case what the technology protective. What is the more humble approach to technology? It's very hard to see in that On case. That, yeah. It seems to me, I don't know. But, but, but I use, I use the, Son, the Sega case for, for a different point. So the court, as you know, finds that accolades uh, use of the copyrighted code is fair use, notwithstanding the copying of the code, given the, the particular technology and structure of the, of the product market. But the reasoning that the court uses to reach the fair use outcome the, the, the court says that accolade is engaged in a mode of criticism. Criticism is a protected mode of using copyrighted works. And it goes through the four fair use factors to sort of back up and detail that line of argument. So hold on to that 
that note for a second that Sega versus Accolade, the reasoning gets squeezed into the criticism box, if you will, okay. as a kind of practice in my thinking. Then advance eight years to, to Sony versus Connectix, also Ninth Circuit case, year 2000, another video game console and competition case, although the, 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 the positions of the parties are reversed. So instead of a defendant creating competitive games, now in Connectix, the defendant is creating a competitive platform for the existing games. So the defense notwithstanding the, the the inversion of the party's positions, the defense is Sega versus Accolade. So meaning hmm. that the defendant says, we don't need the plaintiff's permission to copy the software, in this case, in, in the console cartridge combination. We can copy the software, extract it for its ideas, and then re-engineer a new mode of expression for our competitive uh, platform technology that then competes with the plaintiff. So Sega versus Accolade permits reverse engineering. So the court again finds for the defendant, again on fair use grounds, but instead of arguing that the defendant has engaged in a mode of criticism, simply picking up and extending the style of the argument and the reasoning in Sega, in Sony versus Connectix, the court says, this is reverse engineering. The, the relevant practice, <laughs> for purposes of evaluating the legitimacy of what you've done is sort of a, a, an emergent box, if you will, reverse engineering as a technical practice that has been established and documented and is now, we'll say, confirmed from the standpoint of legal analysis in, in the Sony and Connectix case. So, uh, so to me, the juxtaposition of Sega and the Connectix case teach two things. One is that the timing matters relative to whether a social practice of some sort can be proved and documented or not. And two, in response to the critique that uh, focusing on social practices tends to sort of bake in a kind of static view of the social world, there is room for some flexibility and some adaptability in the model that I'm proposing. And the fact that the reverse engineering category emerged over you know, less than a decade in the context of a copyright system is one bit of evidence to, to support that idea. What is it that's uh, serving the role of helping to form judgments about emerging social categories and whether they are social categories that um, are legitimate in terms of copying and, or, or the social categories which can be assimilated with copycats? H how does that process work in your estimation? I've got a pretty generous tent for what would count, at least in the abstract, as a relevant social practice. Meaning that the, there is a normative line that kicks in fairly far down the road that says some social groups are, are genuine but not normatively legitimate social groups. So, so people who come along and say, our social, our social practice is dedicated to piracy. That's the, you know, or, or, or something more dire and, and violent and uh, mm -hmm. uh, obnoxious to, to uh, fundamental civil society. So, so there's clearly a line down there that so a criminal gang would not constitute <laughs> a, a relevant social practice for reasons that are external to the copyright system itself. Right. So, so there is clearly that, but I put that line fairly far down the road. There's also like the cheapskate line though. I mean, practice, right? You may not be a, a violent or, you know, an anarchist or, or 
have your lot thrown in with even the pirate bay, which people argue about the legitimacy of, but it may just be, I didn't want to pay for it. So like, that's a relevant social practice, isn't it? I would, I would contest the premise that that's a, a, a legitimate social practice. In other words, the, the paper that I wrote in 2004, I spent a lot of time talking about the kinds of things that would have to be demonstrated, both in, not, not just in terms of the rhetoric and the storytelling, not just in the sense that somebody could walk into, into court and say, you know, I believe in the, in the church of, of not paying for things. Uh, <laughs> Sign but, me up. <laughs> but, but, you know, concretely, there, there would have to be other layers of evidence to, to actually back up the claim that there is actual you know, in, to borrow a little bit of the social science, there would have to be evidence, material evidence of a material practice, that there is yeah. a collection of people who actually walk the walk and talk the talk, so that saying that, you know, my belief system says I shouldn't have to pay for music, that would fail the test. I, I, I'll probably kick myself when I listen back to this and realize that, that you already answered it. But just so, so in my thinking about, you know, when you first started talking, the image that I get again is one of like uh, that judges are over time creating tropes. You know, these are social categories and they're kind of fitting the cases that they have into these tropes. And then they are judging, you know, some some tropes represent legitimate copying and some represent copycats or criminality, et cetera. And, and so cases are are being decided based on which line they fall in. What's the difference between that, though? And, and it sounds like you're saying a, a legitimate um, social practice is one that is, well, it, we're fine with and, and by definition. And the things either fall into legitimate social practices or they don't. And if they don't, then you're unprotected by fair use. Would you would you critique my like analogy or, or how do those fit together or if, or not at all? Uh, no, they fit together. I guess the way I think of it is that, yes, there is clearly a sense in which judicial decision making legitimates and advances the, the tropes and the stories that help to define these groups. But I also think that there is a degree to which these groups have a social independence that doesn't depend on their engagement with the copyright system, mm. meaning that journalism has an autonomous social existence. Critique and parody each have his, you know, legitimate independent existences. They, they intersect with the copyright system in interesting ways. Fair use is not the only one, but it's possible to talk meaningfully about the practice of journalism without talking about copyright law. Uh, it's possible to talk meaningfully about the, you know, all the rituals and the concrete manifestations and, and newspapers or no longer newspapers, whatever journalists produce these days. You know, that, that's or, or, or music sampling, right? Mu- music samplers is a category of Well, art, arguably. Right? So, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in copyright law right now around so is remixing, whether that's music sampling or other forms of remixing, is that a definable social category? Um, arguably it is now. Um, I don't want to take a strong position on that one way or the other, but there are definitely people who believe that it is. And the question is, can you produce the evidence? Can you document it independently of the legal system to the degree that any particular judge or panel of judges is not the position of validating that that practice from the get-go? What, one of the interesting applications of this social practices model, at least in the 2004 paper, is I came away somewhat skeptical of the personal use as uh, fair use argument. That is, I, I was a little concerned. I, I, I was not sold that my model would say that using Napster was fair use. Um, I was even a little bit skeptical that the Sony Betamax outcome came out right as of that time when the litigation was brought, precisely for the reasons that you're, you're alluding to, which is it's not clear to me that the evidence supported the idea that 
you know, free music for me is of a legitimate social practice in the sense that it can be documented and proved in, in some relevant way autonomously of the legal decision making itself. But Sony Betamax is, it seems there's another important principle here, though, in the recognition of these categories, if we want to talk about it in, in this way, and that's that the future evolves not just um, in relation to social forces, but also law, right? So law has an influence here. And so this is, you know, I just uh, uh, was kind of finishing up the Ginsburg-Briar debate in Grokster today in property, actually. And, and the, that debate is, is all about this, right? That the law needs to be, needs to give room for these social practices either to define themselves uh, in, a, in, in a way which we find legitimate or for it to become clear that there will never be uh, what what you would consider a valid social practice there, and and if we if we cut off these, um, you know, it's like we, we we kill these technologies in the crib, we will never see that happening. That's what I think is so interesting strategically about the the decision to bring a copyright infringement litigation. I mean, one one thing you might walk away from Mike's paper thinking, although I doubt it's what he might want people to focus on, maybe, I don't know, he'll tell us, right? But, <laughs> but one thing you might walk away from his paper is thinking, generally speaking, um, this is a very strong argument for copyright holders to sue much earlier and much more aggressively. To, because they, because precisely as you just said, right, they need to kill these things in the crib. Right. Uh, or, or they will be much less able to. The, the social practice can grow up so quickly around especially in a case where you're talking about a fair use argument that's used to confront technological change, right? Parody is as old as literature in a way. Right. So that's not, I mean, you can't deal with uh, Roy Orbison thinking, if only I'd brought the pretty woman suit earlier, right? That's right. like, that's not going to do it. Right. Uh, but, 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 but remixes if and YouTube mashups and time shifting, all of these things, right? Or, or, or reverse engineering for the, for right. the cartridges. Or what, there are some where you technological change. You could, and I think of this as some of the Google yeah. cases with uh, search engines and, um, uh, and the book, uh, Google Books, the snippet mm -hmm. scenario and all this stuff. Um, which Mike blogged about, yeah. Yeah, so if you're, it's, it's like if you're a plaintiff, if, look, you've, there's no time. Time is not your friend here. Uh, get in there, sue fast, sue hard, do not talk, do not agree to settle, <laughs> do not get, like, just push that well, case as hard as you yeah. freaking can. Well, that's a good point to ask, Mike, whether you see this project as normative or descriptive. Because the way you described the project, it sounded like you were reading a bunch of cases very carefully to figure out what courts were, what best explains what courts are actually doing. And if what best explains it is that they're, they're identifying social practices, that, that can be a story of what the law is now doing. But that is all you could also take the view that although that's what they're now doing, it is somewhat dangerous when it comes to uh, nascent technologies. Because they're going to find themselves without the capacity to talk in an alternate way. Right. Yeah. So how do you see that, Mike? So what I described already is the descriptive part. OK. All right. <laughs> uh, part <laughs> Makes five sense. of the paper is the normative piece. And the nor I don't talk about the sort of technology development, technology use piece per se, but I talk more generally about the normative implications of focusing on social practices and focusing really on what I think of as part of an institutional approach to copyright in general. And so the part five of this 2004 paper goes on at, at a lot of different lines of different social science research coming out of sociology and psychology and anthropology and history to weave a blended story about the what Jonathan Zittrain might call the generative capabilities of social groups. Mm, mm -hmm. That is, 
sort of over the long run and over um, over appropriate scale, if if the policy bet of copyright is that copyright is designed to promote productive, creative endeavor across society, then finding ways legally to enable social groups and give social groups space to function without having to block and tackle their way through a transactions cost universe is likely to accomplish that goal. It's that the argument is not that that's the exclusive way to accomplish that goal. It's simply that markets are not the exclusive way to accomplish that goal. And an institutionally pluralistic creative environment says some things are reserved to markets, but in opposition to markets or in complementing markets, social groups are, are the, the, next, the next significant institutional actor to look to because they actually do generate productive stuff. And I feel like if you if you don't have an established social practice uh, to uh, embed your story in, you'd better have a very, very compelling story of transformation so that even if the judge doesn't see an existing social practice, it's very easy for the judge to imagine that if I let this go for five years or 10 years, there will be a vibrant and important social practice around that transformative transformation, of, tra- so uh, transformation of the expression in the copyrighted work that's being asserted against the defendant. So you, so I'm, I, my concern is Sony, like as emblematic of my concern, right? And that's like, we were not a nation of time shifters. <laughs> Technology comes along. And several years later, we are a, we are a nation of time shifters, and that's important for all kinds of other like the, the, a nation of time shifters yeah. becomes another kind of nation ten years later, right? I mean, right. Re, you can probably draw a straight line from uh, to, from remixing back to uh, the Sony Betamax. You know, case. The, the Sony ca- in my in my view, and especially with what I just said, uh, it's highlighting it for me, especially here. Um, I, I think the Sony case is exceptionally hard. I mean, it, to, to, for it to have come out the way that it did, and as you said, it nearly didn't, right? Right. Not only was it 5-4, it was held over for a year to be argued again. Right. Oh, um, that's, I had forgotten your exact, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a very, you, I, I think there are really, really good arguments on both sides of that case. It's very challenging. I think they really see, are. Yeah. I think I think what's hard about it is, is if you if you bring the suit at the wrong time, if you bring the suit really early, yeah. right, and there is no great story to tell about the transformative nature of the use of the expression right it's it's 100% duplicative uh it's not transformative in any traditional expressive sense it's tra- it's transformative only in a consumptive it's sense it's transformative of social life it's transformative of whether you have yeah, to Yeah but that's not to... what we mean right no, we're talking about we're talking about not applying copyright where it I'm would worried. be contrary to it. expression to do so right I, my worry more is my worry is that a body of law that makes that identifies that case as a hard one is probably going to murder a bunch of things in the crib, right? I mean, if that case is hard, then a lot of the, a lot of cases. I think it was hard, right? Well, I, but I, it makes a lot of I other cases it should easy be after. I don't think it should be okay, hard. Okay, well, because, you're living in the world it made, so maybe that's why you don't <laughs> no, perceive I mean, it to be as hard well, as it was no, in, in 1984. If, I'm saying if that case is hard, then there are a lot of social transformations that will never occur, because you know Sony will be decided this way. Sony beta, I mean, that's a bad word. Sony beta, Sony, <laughs> Sony gamma, right? Like oh, there'll be other cases which are decided the other way. And like, we can't imagine the world in which Sony didn't come out the way that it did, where instead of the, you know, VCRs becoming ubiquitous, you, right. I, I think you, you still would have had VCRs. It just would have been, Hey, here's the Disney VCR, which plays our Disney tapes. And here's the, uh, you know, and, and here's the, um, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the, the MGM DVD slash right. uh, videotape player. That's a different world, And right? of course, Grokster so, did come out the other way. 
Well, can, it did, can, I, yeah. can I jump in on that? Yeah. On that point, Christian, because I think that's a really, really critical point. And, and let me sort of expand it a, a little bit. Um, one aspect uh, I think that's important to remember about the Sony case is the Betamax machine and, and VCRs in general really were an exceptional, extraordinary technology at the time, meaning not that many people had them. They were really expensive. People who did have them were regarded as sort of exotic, rich, rare birds. And I, I can say all that because I was there. I, my, I was in high school and then beginning of college when that case was being litigated. Remind us, this was like 80 and it came out in 82 or something? The, the Supreme Court opinion was in 84. So 84. the 84, okay. So the case was being litigated through the early 80s. Uh, I, had, I had friends who had Betamaxes and they were... It was like having a DeLorean in in the late '80s. It was <laughs> such an exotic, an exotic machine, and a time machine to boot. I think I think you're right that you know it's possible, but there's no way to know that cultural evolution would have gone in a different direction had the five four split in Sony turned out the other way, as it very nearly did. But I also think it's really really hard to judge, and this is a, a flaw in copyright generally whether that alternative cultural universe would be better or worse than the cultural universe that we have today. There's a little bit of a just-so story baked in that says, you know, we're able to do all these marvelous things with TV technology because the Sony Betamax case came out in favor of consumers. But note, very few people use VCRs any longer, to the best of my instinct anyway. Time-shifting is now very heavily baked into... Netflix or cable TV distribution or set-top boxes of other sorts, the vast majority of which is bought and paid for and cleared, and the price is baked into your subscription. So we're no longer as much a nation of free time shifters as we were for the 20, 25 years or so, maybe 30 years after, um, well, say 25 years after um, the Betamax case came out. So to me, that reinforces Joe's point about it actually being a hard case because it's very hard at the moment it's being decided to predict what the long-term welfare effects are. The other thing I think it's worth interjecting here is my, a bias that's in my writing that I didn't make terribly explicit in this paper in 2004, but I've become more aware of it as I've sort of elaborated the argument in later papers and then extended this social practices mode into other work, which is I am willing to accept uh, a fair degree of autonomy for the cultural world, independent of how it intersects with the legal world. So I think that copyright lawyers in particular sometimes make a mistake when they in- infer or sometimes even expect a very, very tight alignment between the way the copyright system works with cultural creativity or whatever and the forms of cultural creativity themselves. Whereas my bias is to think that those realms intersect a lot, but one is not automatically or directly dependent on the other. Um, So you can set up the legal rules to work in a certain way. And then to a certain extent, the cultural world will just do its own thing for reasons that are somewhat independent of the way that the the cultural world works. Is that partly because of like the catch-all and Peñafar idea about people just breaking the law? Not necessarily breaking the law. It's just creative people. And this comes partly from just talking to people who are creative people in other areas, whether it's you know sculpture or painting or photography or code. Uh, I think it's Eben Moglen, uh, who's you know, best known for its relationship to open source software licensing, likes to remind people that, that human beings are just 
creative animals. Yeah, yeah. Creators will create. And it's not like they're completely indifferent to background copyright systems or other relevant legal systems. But the urge to create can be so powerful that it won't always overcome, but it will often find ways of expression. Now, I should say, that's a very contestable premise. I get that. Jennifer Rothman, who's a, a great copyright scholar and general IP scholar at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, has a very different take on that set of premises. Her reaction to my social practices framework has pretty consistently been sort of aligned with yours, which is that the purpose of fair use is precisely to enable that transformative outlier. And that if you bake social practices into fair use the way I am suggesting is done and should be done, then in Jennifer's view, the copyright world will not give enough space to the, the true transformative creators who really need it. The, the other thing your argument is, is a good argument for just less copyright and more fair use because you don't need it. Don't need what? Copyright to encourage people to get off their butts and write something like that. If that's an innate human urge, then, then it suggests yeah, less, less need to be worried about underproduction. I mean, I think another right. thing that's happening here, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, I agree with Mike's, uh, what Mike described, but I think even that's time dependent in the sense that, as I'm fond of pointing out to the students and a, and a thing that separates them from me in a way, um, us as older people is, you know, the, so the 76 Act was designed at a time when cop, I'm not the only first person to come up with this idea by far, but, uh, but the, the 76 Act is designed at a time when copyright law is still basically industrial regulation. So it's, it's not until you get prices for computing power and computing memory falling through the floor mm-hmm. that suddenly we all have very powerful industrial strength copying machines and copying distribution machines and platforms with the global internet. Where right? you can, you can so, cut a two-hour movie on your laptop. Right. So suddenly yeah. everybody is now regulated by the copyright statute in a way that if you'd gone back into 1976 and asked, you know, what slice of the American population do you think you're really regulating? Right. They would have given you a very small number and they would have been right. It's, you're talking about a vi- So, for example, the people who need to understand the act are lawyers who work in New York City or in Hollywood. And that's basically it. Huh. Right. Um, uh, that's not true anymore. And I think Sony may be a, a case we can ident- start to identify as a pivot point. Right. This is a powerful reproduction technology that's starting to enter the American home. Well, part of what you're saying, if it fits in with what. Mike is saying is that with the lowering costs of producing creative works and producing widely disseminated ones is an explosion of identifiable social practices. Like there were, you know what I mean? Like there, there are just many more and a greater diversity of social practices that you would observe as legitimate. Do I have that right? Or I guess the way I would, I think that's it. I think your instinct is right. I think the way I would, would put it is that the, the changes of the last 30 years, 30 30 or 40 years, we'll say, in terms of technologies and and related things, is that it's made explicit and at larger scale something that was implicit and at smaller scale earlier on, which Mm -hmm. is that there are a lot of institutional forms by which creative stuff gets made and distributed. That the the biases of the, the 76 Act and the 1909 Copyright Act, and this is what Joe is getting at, The biases were that creative stuff, whether it's film or music or literature, gets made and produced in these industrial or quasi-industrial organizations. They're capped by movie studios, 
record companies, music publishers, book publishers, and the creative people who feed their content into them. We know going back centuries and centuries, maybe even millennia, that collections of creative people made amazing creative stuff without being part of that industrial pipeline. But the, we'll say the first three quarters of the 20th century, so progressively, I, I won't say erased, but put that activity at a lower level on the, on the hierarchy of what was deserving of legal protection. Shortly after the 76 Act gets enacted and, and put in place, and the Sony cases at that precise time, technology conditions sort of recreate the possibility for social groups doing stuff and doing creative stuff, doing stuff that society values. And the, the statute as a, as a formal whole isn't really geared to accommodate that. So one way to think about what I'm arguing for fair use is fair use is a place in the statute that is broad enough and flexible enough to give salience to an affirmation to these collective creative practices that otherwise were submerged. In, in a later paper, much shorter paper than the 2004 paper, uh, I wrote something about three or four years ago, I, I analogize the role of industrial production of creative things in markets on the one hand and social practices based production of creative things in the fair use domain. I analogize those two domains to a kind of separation of powers principle. The, the function of both the industrial side and the social practices side, uh, the function is the same. The function is to enable society to produce and have access to and the ability to use creative stuff. But there's multiple institutional modes of making that happen. And the the statute needs to find a way to accommodate those multiple modes in a kind of side-by-side way. Ah, without their interfering with one another too much. Right, that's and this a, goes going to be a yeah. bit of friction at the edges, right? Yeah. That will give you hard, hard cases at the edges. That's a, that's a cool idea. We'll link that one up too. The idea, you know, a lot of, of traditional copyright lawyers even today would say that fair use is this marginal idea that is subordinate to the exclusive rights of the copyright owner and is only there as a kind of escape valve in the case of truly funny parody, truly extraordinary trans, transaction, mm-hmm. use, transaction cost problem, or other really strange exceptional cases. And your market-based production of copyright is really the, the norm, both descriptively and normatively. And I'm, in my own way, I'm very much trying to push back against that framing. Mike, is there, is there anything else which just has to be said from your point of view? Um, And this will be also a segue for our next episode with you, which will be a 15 hour episode, because that's what we will require to fully get the juice out of this amazing stuff. That's that's enough time for us to make it like our our, our rip off of like the great courses or one of these things. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll charge the big bucks for that one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's enough of a teaser for next time. Then I, I do. I have to say, I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't get to talk about sandwiches and hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> and burritos and 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 speed traps there's still so much to do that's why we need a 15 hour episode there there is there's always too much to do that's true that's true well what mike do you think is is a hot dog a sandwich a hot dog is not a sandwich but there's a social practices explanation behind all of that <laughs> oh but you're right <laughs> we can get so deep into this uh, you know you know that i think it's a totally ill-posed question and, and and that's where I disagree with Judge. You agree with Judge Hodgman, and you just have a uh, a, a different take on it. I we guess we can't do this. Oh, okay, okay, all right. We got, we, we're going to do it next time. You know the you know the funny thing about long episodes is like I bear all the costs of these long episodes. It's that's not I, what I'm. That's not my concern. I, I know it's not your concern, but it's isn't it funny though that you're pushing back and and yet like 
It's especially t- galling since I won't pay the price. I agree. <laughs> except that you have to Life's listen. Life's not fair. Except you have to listen to it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much. This was this is a real pleasure. The first well, of thank many. Thank you. This has been a blast and the time has flown by. <laughs>